I'd like to welcome you to Verde Valley Christian Church. So glad you joined us online today for this message, the fourth in the series called Barriers. Uh, we've been looking at this series um, at this time for the reason that we are going through tough times. We're experiencing a lot of uncertainties. And as the longer we go through these tough times and uncertainties, the two things can happen. <clears throat> Our faith can increase and we can grow or we might be sabotaged in our faith and have doubts, and this series is designed to uh, help turn those doubts into uh, strengthening faith instead of a diminishing faith when things are hard and we've got bad news coming our direction all the time. So this is the fourth in the series. We've looked at four topics, and the topics are these. How could a loving God allow so much suffering? How can you say there is only one true faith? Hasn't science disproved the Bible? And today's topic is the last one. How could a loving God send people to hell? Well, let me just say right up front that this last topic, this fourth one, is for me, the, I think, the heaviest and the hardest topic. And uh, it is probably my second least favorite topic in the Bible. Um, which makes you automatically wonder what is my first least favorite topic. My very least is kind of personal, but I'm going to share it with you. My least favorite verse in the Bible is James 3.1. It reads, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. So here's one teacher writing to another teacher, me, that we shouldn't be seeking to be teachers uh, unless God has really called to us to this because being a teacher means you receive a stricter judgment. Now, if I had a black highlighter and I could cut out pieces of scripture that I did not like, this would be one. I do not like the fact that, yes, I know I'm a teacher. Yes, I've been called to be a teacher of God's word. And yes, that means that I will be held to a stricter judgment. I think you get that because I can lead a lot of people off and astray and wrong. And I take my uh, role as teacher very seriously. So I've been more nervous and more... Uh, struggling with the heavy content of hell, my second least favorite subject, as the topic today. I've run into conversations like these on multiple occasions, and sometimes it boils down to a comment that goes something like this. I really don't like your God. Uh, the way your God presents himself and what your God does is a God I do not like. I don't want to be with that God forever. And um, it's a... I respect that person's opinion and their approach, but I would probably want to ask them, well, what's the God like that you don't like? Because I, I have a feeling that if they describe this God in the way that they don't like them, I wouldn't like that God either. And so I would want to have that dialogue. In fact, if I were to break this uh, session down uh, into uh, points, I only have time for two points, but I wanted to break it down into four points. The four points would have broken the question down. The question is, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I would want to answer it by what do you mean by God, just like I talked about as the first point, and what do you mean by loving as the second point, and what do you mean by send as the third point, and then get to what do you mean by hell. And I'd love to take the time to do all four of those, but we really only have time to get into two of them, and so we're going to be taking a look at those middle two, what do you mean by loving, and 
what do you mean by send? So, because I am a teacher, and this is uncomfortable to me like it is to you, I I hope you'll do me the favor. Let's say you, you were invited to come to this session, and all of a sudden I'm talking about something I'm very uncomfortable with, and you're here listening to a subject you're very uncomfortable with. I hope you won't be tempted to just shut the device off and move on. I hope you'll... Um, understand that I believe it's an important topic. And here's a little bit of how I think. Although I do not like the topic, I don't think I have the option to avoid the topic because I believe in Jesus. And I believe in Jesus for some good reasons. In my, in my opinion, my, my good reasons are that he uh, had credentials, he had claims, he claimed to be a son of God. He then claimed to, uh, in a future what was going to happen, he was going to be crucified and he was going to rise from the dead and there's a lot of evidence that that really took place, that he was vindicated, that his claims have some credibility, that he was resurrected and if that is all true, then that worldview that Jesus holds is a worldview that I need to hold and it's an important worldview and Jesus himself is probably the person that tells us more about hell than any other person in all of scripture. I, I, I don't think probably, I know he is. And so I can't not talk about this important subject because it's very important for Jesus to talk about. And what's unusual about this is that we think of Jesus as being a uh, grace merciful, kind sort of person only, but we're gonna jump into where he, he is, uh, he's a little bit tough sometimes. Now, one of the other reasons why this subject is so difficult is our culture. In our culture, in modern Western culture, we have an aversion to anything that is judgmental. We have an aversion to anybody being judgmental towards another person. We kind of think everybody is okay and everybody needs to feel okay and we need to value each person. There's a piece of that that I can appreciate, but um, there comes a point that it's no longer theoretical and it's no longer theoretical when something very wicked happens to you personally. Something cries out within us that we want justice Some people might look at a criminal behavior and even still because they have an aversion for judgmentalness, they might uh, make excuses for the so-called criminal and say, well, it's probably he did that evil because obviously he's got some mental health issues going on or or maybe it's because of his um, radical religious views that he does something so wicked or maybe it's because of this environmental situation he was brought up in, that, and they almost make the victim out of the perpetrator of wicked, wicked crimes. But you don't feel that way when a crime is committed a little close to home. So let me start there. When I was uh, in high school, my sophomore year, we received news that my aunt had been brutally murdered. This was my mother's little sister. I still remember the day that my mom and my dad returned from being asked to go to the morgue and identify the body of my mother's little sister. My mom 
was devastated. I didn't realize how devastated she was until years later when I was um, asked to be the executor of my parents' estate and my mom was dying of cancer and she brought out a big box of collected evidence because the murderer of my mom's sister was never found, never prosecuted, and she had theories and she had evidence she was collecting. And she wanted to put that evidence in my lap so that somehow this person, whether it's the person she thought it was or not, would come to justice. There's a part of us inside that when something really wicked, something really evil takes place, whether it's a systematic abuse situation or it's a brutal murder or it's a horrific, premeditated, cruel crime against somebody else, there's something inside of us that cries out for justice. And I think that is natural. I think if we didn't, we could be even called into question whether we are good, that we have some sort of a alliance with evil, that we don't want evil to come to justice. And so this kind of question how could a loving God send somebody to hell, is really a question about justice. And justice and love are more closely associated than we might think. So I want to begin with, what do you mean by loving? And ask this question, is God's love always a teddy bear love? Or is it sometimes a fierce mama bear love? I think each one of us recognizes when we look at our own parents, or if not our own parents, we start to think about good parents, there needs to be a tender, sentimental, teddy bear love expressed to children, but there also needs to be a mama bear fierceness for the well-being of the child that's at work. And so when there's a only a teddy bear love. You can see how in a parent situation, uh, we've, we kind of see maybe good parents could be better if it wasn't only teddy bear loves raising a spoiled, rotten, self-centered kid. It's not very loving towards the child. But if it's only a mother bear fierceness for rules and right and wrong and it has to be this way and there's never a tender side, uh, perhaps a child might want to rebel and run away from a parent's rules as fast as they can to get away from something later they deem as not as good, as, as loving as perhaps they felt was right. So if you don't have both sides of a loving nature expressed, that teddy bear side and that mama bear fierceness side expressed in some way, perhaps that love could be called into question is not all that good. Well, what we learn from Scripture through and through is that God reveals himself as both uh, merciful and kind in a teddy bear love, if you will, and fierce and just and tough when it comes to truth and justice because he is holy. So we see this kind of thing as it relates to consequences. 
and consequences we see even in nature itself. And Paul writes in Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. He is stating a general truth that behaviors and choices and habit patterns result in consequences that match with those behaviors and choices and habit patterns, just like seeds that are planted match with the harvest that results. There is a correlation there. We might begin to ask the question, well, is there always a correlation? And could forgiveness, could mercy change that correlation? And we actually get into some of those themes in a moment. So let's take a look at John 1.14 where we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And just so you know, we're talking about not just an abstract word, but the word who is God and was with God and he was from the beginning with God. And it's a he. And then we read here to be sure, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father. So Jesus is the image of God, perfectly reflecting the glory of his Father is what this is saying. And Jesus himself, it says, is full of grace and truth because he's perfectly reflecting the grace and truth of the Father. Do you see that we're talking about the teddy bear nature of God's love and the fierce mama bear nature of God's love is um, now embodied in two concepts of full of grace and full of truth, both in one being. If you only are full of grace and truth doesn't really matter, there's something off there. If you're only full of just harsh realities of fierce truth and no grace, there's something that might be said deficient in that love as described. But if you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus, who reveals that God himself is full of grace and full of truth. We usually think of Jesus as full of grace. We usually think of Jesus as so soft and tender towards the broken and wounded and the religious elite of his day so harsh and fierce and mean, self-righteous. And we see this clash taking place between Jesus and the people who were the religious people of his day. But we often forget that Jesus is also full of truth, and this all fits together. I want to pick a passage where he talks a lot about hell without even using the word hell, and he talks a lot about hell. But here's a passage where he doesn't even use the word, and we see it in the passage very clearly. In John 5, 27 through 29, we read, and he, was, he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus often referred to himself in the third person as the son of man. He's the son of God, the son of man, but he chose a neutral term and loaded it, the son of man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the voice of the son of man, and come out of the graves. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. It's really clear that he's talking about judgment and condemnation and sentencing that's gonna take place, the harvest that comes place from the seeds that were sown in all of our lives. 
the natural consequences. In fact, we want God to be like this. Nobody wants God to say, Hitler, oh, you know, boys will be boys. Um, That's just the way some people are. And treat Hitler and Mother Teresa with exactly the same results. One sowing murder and, and, and killing off a whole race, people God loved, and another person serving on, in Jesus' name their whole life. It would be terrible if God, it doesn't really matter. You know, boys will be boys. Hitler and Mother Teresa, it's all the same. We all end up in the same place. That can't be right. And Jesus, who talks about hell, is the one who tells us about heaven. And yet I meet believers today that want to believe in heaven, but hate and don't prefer and dislike the subject of hell to the degree that they almost don't believe there is a hell and everybody's going to eventually get to heaven. To me, that doesn't quite compute. How can you pick one thought of Jesus, believe it, and cut out the other? Because hell is a corollary truth. If there's no sentencing of evil and no sentencing that separates that evil out of culture, we even know in our culture today, if we don't arrest and sentence and separate, our culture is more hellish. And what God is going to do is bring us to heaven. So all of the hellishness has to be dealt with in some way. And that's what we're talking about. I'm not really interested in a made-up God. I mean, we don't decide through some feel-good kit in theology, this is the kind of God that I prefer. This is the kind of God or religion that I really want. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the real God who reveals himself and says through his action in history, his relationships in history and his revelations through those relationships with events, what he is really like. In fact, that's the way it's laid out in scriptures. He says, I am who I am. And this is what I have done. This is what I am doing. And this is what I'm going to do. And he is taking care of things, making the wrongs Right. In Romans 3, 22 through 26, we read this. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. This is a huge uh, statement coming after chapter one and chapter two and chapter one. He's saying they, 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 and they're without excuse. In chapter two, he surprises his audience. He says, we, 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 we are without excuse if we think that we are good and we are better because we obey this and we have the law. He says, you're without excuse. Here's how you're made right with God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We'll skip to verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify 
the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a huge statement. He's saying, here's how you can be made right with God. We, because of a nature inside of us, not because we're victims of everything happening outside of us, there's something inside of us intrinsically that has to be dealt with and God has dealt with that to make us right with him. Jesus dying on the cross atones for our sin so that he takes that on for himself. And when he takes that on and absorbs it away from us, he then can put his life into us. And all of this takes place on the cross in this way so that God would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So he has uphold his justice while at the same time making right the person who was in the wrong. How is that even possible? On the screen, we have this quote. What we discover is that at the cross, God's love and justice intersect. That Jesus takes on the punishment that we deserve so that he can give us the righteousness that we do not have, his righteousness. He takes our sin away so that God can place within us and dwell within us a holiness that replaces that intrinsic unholiness that Jesus takes away. We kind of get this on a small scale. The illustration might break down a little bit, but we kind of get this. Let's say you have house rules and you're the parent. And in your house rules, you tell your child, do not throw a ball in the house. You're going to break things. Now, don't throw a ball in the house. The child knows it. The child uh, throws a ball when you're in another room. You hear a big crash and you go into that room and discover the ball was thrown. A big window pane is busted out. And the child is crying, knowing that they have done wrong. Big old crocodile tears and come, comes before you as the parent and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know you told me not to throw the ball in the house and I did and I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, I broke the, I broke the window. Please forgive me. What is that? If forgiveness takes place, what is that? That's not an arbitrary decision. It's extending grace when somebody does something wrong. But the important question to understand is that the window has been broken and to be made right, there's the making right in relationship, but it's at what price? It's at the price of, if this is a five-year-old child who is at, pleading for mercy and the parent decides that's the best thing to do, then when they extend that forgiveness, that parent is the one who pays the price for that forgiveness. It costs them the price for the window. Now, it might be a different matter if their child is 15 <laughs> and this has been a repeated offense. There might be a decision to bring about some consequences, but in the case of forgiveness, the parent pays to be made right with a child that cannot make it right. And it's love that brings about the grace and the mercy to bring that about. It's justice, the window is paid for, but paid for by the parent, and it is making right the relationship through mercy and forgiveness. Hopefully that kindness and that mercy will endear the child to the parent and cause that child to not want to throw the ball again. That's the point of what God has done on the cross. 
Point number two, what do you mean by send? So in point number one, what do you mean by loving? We mean that God is both tough and tender. He is the one who upholds justice and is the justifier. And if you're not going to receive the justification, the making right with God through mercy, which he has made for us and extended to us, then there's still somebody who's going to pay for the broken window. And if you're the guilty party, you're going to pay unless you receive the forgiveness. So what do you mean by send? The judge isn't sending someone to jail. He's sentencing someone to jail who is arrested. A guilty party is arrested, tried, found guilty, and sentenced. And (laughs) almost always, even on earth, the guilty party who is guilty knows they are guilty. And the sentencing is just, and they are now having to be sentenced. So they made choices knowing that they could be caught, knowing that it was an illegal choice, knowing that this could go badly for them, and it did go badly for them, and now the sentencing takes place. So we have another quote on the screen. Our eternal destination is determined at the intersection of decision. God made a way for us. He has decided that in Jesus he will pay for our sins to clean us from the inside so they can place his life in us so that by his kindness and grace he can move us and shift something inside and literally change us from the inside out. If we don't want to have anything to do with that, then our decision to not have anything to do with that is a decision that has consequences. How could a loving God send people to hell? I think Jesus already gave us some answers there. Here's a hint at an answer to that question found in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. On the screen is a quote that says, decision is the key to destiny. If somebody were to ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? God would say, I will not send you there, but if you choose to go there, I could never lock you out. So we're kind of back at the beginning in a conversation with somebody that said, I don't really like your God. I don't really want to have anything to do with your God. And I've all of my life long uh, chosen to ignore uh, the consequences you've talked about. I don't believe in those consequences. It's a little bit like a parent addressing a teenager in trouble. And the teenager in trouble is in the gang. And he's been active with drugs and with violence and crime. And the mother is pleading with the teenager son, you are on your way to either being killed or being arrested and sentenced for a very long time. 
and the son just blows it off like, it'll never happen to me. I will never be arrested. Don't worry about me, mother. And yet here it comes. Eventually there's the consequences which the mother sees. If a person is rejecting the offer that God made through Jesus, and Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I am paying for the intrinsic evil inside of you. I am making a way to remove the hellishness inside of your heart so that heaven can invade your heart and make you fit for my kingdom. And we have done everything in our lives to choose the kingdom of darkness instead of the kingdom of light on earth. Doesn't it seem odd that we would now question God and say, how, how, could, you, how could you sentence me when we wanted to have nothing to do with God and he was doing everything he could to invite us into an eternity with him? He's graciously providing for us, providing a way, providing everything we need to enjoy a kingdom with him. But if we do not like his kingdom, we do not like his values, we do not like his character, and we were never wooed by his love, and we always loved the darkness, always loved the broad and easy way, he's very clear it's heading somewhere, and it's heading somewhere that is destruction to you. And in many passages, eternal because we are eternal beings. So this is a very important subject. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about who we are, that we're eternal beings, and that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light, and we're in a battle, and he's going to rescue us out of darkness in the kingdom of light and bring us joy and life to the full as opposed to being pulled into the darkness and pulled into the place where all our joy is stolen, all our life is stolen, and we enjoy the evil desires of our own heart and continue on a broad path with everybody else. It's that stark. And there's nothing unloving or unjust about God telling us, this is my character. These are the stark realities. I'm going to preserve and protect those who are in my kingdom and I'm a fierce mama bear who's going to protect them and bring them through and we're going to enjoy eternity together in the glories of heaven. And I need you to know this. We're talking for keeps and we're talking for real. You choose. And he, because he's loving and he's allowed us a freedom to choose, it's against his nature to force us away from our own choices. God is tough and he is tender and he has made a way. He is a justifier and he's just. I'm so grateful that he's willing to make me right with him on a basis that I could never on my own. I don't have it inside of me to live up to his holy standard. I never have. I can try, but it's just not there. I am grateful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who took my sins away so that I can spend eternity with him. And I have a message of good news. It's available to you too. Jesus loves you so much. He paid the eternal consequences for your sin. Would you reach out to him? Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, Thank you for being willing, 
willing to share the good news with all its grace and with all its truth, with all its justice and with all its mercy, to lay it out before us. And here we are, we're hearing it, and we need to choose. I pray that there be many who've seen bricks of the barrier that they don't like start to come down, that instead of a barrier, they'd see a signpost that's pointing to your goodness, your love, your justice, and see that it, it kind of makes sense and cry out to you to be a savior, to take us through to eternity with you. We thank you for loving us so much that you're willing to pay the price for us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I told you it was going to be a heavy one. It's hard for us to think in these terms. You believers, do you really believe it? If you really believe it, we need to be crying out to God for our friends and our family and our loved ones and loving them, loving them into the presence of God. Hope to join you all next week as we have come out of a tough series, kind of more stuff that's really hard to think about. And we're going to go into a series where I think we need this now. Uh, we're going to start a series called Good News in Tough Times. It's going to be more of an emotional support to us as we continue longer than we want to be in tough times together. And God is there for us, giving us the support we need. So I hope to see you next week for Good News in Tough Times. Thank you for joining us today.